I nearly didn't get in this time. Um, I uh, noticed that my passport was now an e-passport and uh, that the uh, machines where you swipe them were empty of people, but there was a big queue going, coming back into Fortress Britain. You have to cross the red line and all the rest of it. So I said to the man when we got there, I said, um, could I have used my e-passport in the booth? Oh, yes, he said, and then he became rather thoughtful. Though he said, in your case, uh, you would have been turned back. Uh, you have exactly the same name as a Jamaican gangster. So maybe I should change it to Hunt after all. <laughs> well, that's the British side. I mean, Egypt attracts all kinds of interesting people. Of course, uh, this week the betting is on now. Prince William and Kate Middleton are engaged. And uh, although he proposed in Kenya, I'm wondering whether they might just come to Egypt for their honeymoon. And, uh, of course, people are fascinated. Many of you, I think, have been to Egypt. You've visited. Fascinated by the sights and the sounds and the smells. Often, as we discover when we look after visitors and guests, uh, absolutely overwhelmed by all these things. Uh, um, we get some very interesting people in Egypt, too. One of Helen's most interesting conversations with our bishop who is an Egyptian, but who trained as a doctor first before he got ordained. Uh, so he knows the West and the Middle East. Uh, one of her conversations with him was about how you read people in a different context. How you tell who's fascinating, who's eccentric, and who, frankly, is barking. <laughs> and there's a few of those who come to Egypt sometimes. And uh, we have to help each other discern what is going on. And, of course, he helps us all the time because we are constantly needing the help of our friends to know what's going on around us. Someone said that uh, living in Egypt is like living in an onion. There's always another layer that you didn't know about, some extra dimension that you may have missed. But over the bridge from us, over the Nile, uh, down the hill a little bit, graffitied on the wall is why many people come. Egypt, it says, is the cradle of civilization. The cradle of civilization. Here we have roots. We go back thousands of years. Cairo is the mother of the world. Literally, Al-Kahira means uh, the victorious or the oppressor. And it depends which day you hit her, which one it will be. Africa's largest city. 20 million, maybe. That's 40 times Edinburgh. Egyptians are themselves proud Middle Easterners. And of course, so we pray for them because they often find themselves playing a key role in the various levels of the oh-so-complex peace process. But uh, Egypt also is an African city. The uh, day of prayer that takes place on Pentecost Sunday was called by Africans in the beginning, from South Africa to Egypt, united together, calling the world to prayer. And I think this year was the first time, maybe last year, when every nation in the world at last had some group that we knew about who were praying for God to move across the world and in their nation. Uh, Egyptians are Africans, especially when it's the Africa Cup and they get to beat everybody else, which they've done for the last seven years. And uh, Egypt, of course, is also big enough just to be Egypt, thank you. Big enough to be independent, like Turkey, like Iran. These three great nations cradling the region. 
And in each of these nations, the gospel is having its impact. For us as guests, we never fail to be moved by living in a country with such deep Christian roots. There's no reason to doubt, I think, the tradition that St. Mark came and brought the gospel to Alexandria right after the resurrection. And uh, the Egyptians set great store by this. Such a sense of the gospel from the beginning. We're working with the Lord's people who one way and another have been here since the time of Jesus himself. In one of the fourth century Syrian monasteries, it's called the Syrian one in the desert in Egypt. It has a door. The photograph, I'm afraid, didn't come out, so I can't show it to you. But on the door, there are ten panels focusing on the cross. And each panel tells you about a period of time in the life of the church, from the very beginning to those early persecutions, to the time when the church was the majority in each country and in the region, to further persecutions when Islam came, and so on, right the way through into the 20th century. It's an amazing piece of work. The pressure that our friends feel that has come these last 1400 years since Islam swept across the region. The pressure is real. Islam does not do minorities. We feel it very keenly. Egypt, on the one hand, we've discovered, is a very significant place where Muslims in the majority and Christians do live and work together most of the time in peace and respect. That's a feature that our Egyptian friends would want you to know for sure. Muslims and Christians are working well together by and large. Yet at the same time, people can lose their lives if they change side, especially from Muslim to Christian. Most church leaders that we now meet and hear from believe that the pressure will grow for our friends in the Middle East. That what they call at the moment harassment, not yet persecution. But that harassment will one day become full-scale persecution. And they seek our prayers. They value our friendships. We know that incentives are offered to prisoners, for example, or to poorer people, to become Muslims and to gain as a result. Doors will open for them. Their papers will be in order they can have work. They can have money. Muslims at the same time are encountering Jesus through visions and dreams and turning to him seeking people who will help them understand. They know about Jesus from the Quran. He features there. The picture is distorted from our point of view. But they recognize him and they want more as a result of their encounters. Pray for these things to continue. Pray particularly as I know you do. For those who minister with satellite channels. Sat7 and others. And those who work through internet help. These things are brilliant now. In the Middle East we've discovered that uh, asking questions. Is kind of slightly disloyal. You, you shouldn't ask questions of people in authority. Mullahs or even ministers sometimes. Uh, and, but the internet and the satellite explosion 
has allowed people to ask their questions, albeit anonymously, sometimes. And the conversations are beginning, and the doors are opening in the 21st century again. What is it that has sustained our friends these many, many years? Especially those last 1,400, when they've been a pressured minority. Well, the story of Scripture sustains them. They can go right back to Abraham and to Moses. Common points between uh, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, though different stories being told between Islam and the other two. This week has been Eid al-Adha, the celebration, the month of pilgrimage to Mecca, the celebration of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son at God's call. But the details are different. For our Muslim friends, Abraham is invited to sacrifice Ishmael, his youngest toddler son. In scripture, of course, we know that Abraham is invited to sacrifice his grown son, Isaac. And God provides for that sacrifice. I'm afraid it comes to the same for the sheep in Cairo, who will have been slaughtered in great numbers this week to celebrate the feast. But the, the stories are different. By the way, if you have colleagues at work, people who are neighbors, who are on the pilgrimage now, do take the chance to ask them about it afterwards. Do go and listen. Be amazed by the devotion, but be aware of the different stories that are being told. And take the opportunity then to invite as the Christmas season emerges to tell another dimension of the story and bring them into contact with the gospel. Later on in Isaiah 19, you can follow this later, the vision that Isaiah has of God uniting the whole Middle Eastern region in praise and witness to the Lord is very striking and very clear. Isaiah calls it the highway. And it goes right from the Kurdish area in northern Iran and northern Iraq and northern Syria and Turkey. Right down through those countries, down through Syria, down through Lebanon and Jordan, through Israel and Palestine, all the way into Egypt and Sinai and the Arabian Peninsula. The promise from Isaiah is this, that one day, once more, people from all these nations will honor and trust and serve and worship the Lord throughout each of their lands. Isaiah finishes that vision with the memorable phrase, Blessed be Egypt, my people. 90% Muslim at the moment. The promise, blessed be Egypt, my people. This sustains our friends. Of course, you know, and you've been learning this from Sunday evenings, I gather, most of the time in Scripture... Egypt is the place to get out of. And that has its difficulties. A friend of mine, uh, Canon Medhat, did a D-min uh, on Egypt in the Bible. I think that was quite a tough assignment. There's a lot about Egypt in the Bible. But most of the time, it's the place to escape from. The place of oppression. The place of difficulty. Uh, it's uh, one of the destinations of the exile. 
And I can show you a quick glimpse, by the way, of All Saints on the screen there now, just for a minute. Uh, All Saints, a remarkable, striking building. You can see the crown on the top. And if you were to go inside, you'd find it was a standard cross-shaped building inside. It's designed like a Bedouin tent to be a place of welcome for all people and a house of prayer for all nations. And uh, at All Saints, like you here, we pursue series from Scripture when we can. And we've been hearing the message of Jeremiah in the last few weeks. Someone said as we came towards the end, I'm really glad we did that series. I don't think I'd have read Jeremiah otherwise. It reminds me of someone at St. Thomas's uh, who once said to me after a long series on Ecclesiastes, which is kind of like a biblical paint stripper, taking away all your pretensions and your illusions. And after eight weeks on it, she said to me, Oh, I'm so glad that series is over. (laughs) It had done its work. And uh, Jeremiah uh, has been very powerful to us. And he ended up in Egypt. He was exiled to Egypt. Indeed, um, we send many of our guests down to old Egypt to look around the old sites, as we'll hear in a minute, the places where Jesus and his family came. But also tucked away behind, there is the last remaining synagogue. And the word is that the bones of Jeremiah are underneath the synagogue. So we send them off to see if they can find him. Of course, uh, for our Middle Eastern friends, sometimes they're quite nervous about the Old Testament because there's so much about Jerusalem and Zion and Israel, and these are painful issues for many of them. It's just too difficult and too confusing. But our Egyptian friends are a bit more relaxed because for them, it's part of the roots of the story. They know their part in the story. And particularly as we remember this verse, From Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. God says, out of Egypt have I called my son. Egypt has a special place in the gospel story. Matthew 2, verse 15 comes from Hosea 11, verse 1. Hosea's prophecy fulfilled in the events of Jesus' birth and youth. And even fulfilled in the crisis that followed the visit of these wise people. It's reported by Matthew. Matthew, the gospel writer, most concerned about roots. So by the way, when you see the pictures, when you see the Christmas cards, when you see uh, the Holy Family trekking through Egypt, you can see them just on the bottom left there. The pyramids are always in the background. So we never forget that they came here. We never forget that they came to Egypt and they found in Egypt a place of safety when Herod was raging and destroying families and children's lives. They came to Egypt and it was a place of welcome to the Lord Jesus. They came to Egypt. No one knows how long they stayed. The stories vary. And of course, it's wonderful for the tourist industry. If you go, you'll be shown many, many, many places where Jesus and Joseph and Mary slept. And you'll be invited to make your offering in respect for it. But they spent their time preparing for his return to his life and his ministry in Nazareth. It's very deep For our friends, we have a place in God's big picture. This is our place. The place of safety for the Lord. The place of welcome for him. 
the place of preparation for his future ministry. And as we reflect on those words, I want to share with you three of the things that we have been struck by most about our Egyptian Christian friends. In the time that we've visited, in the time that we've worked these last couple of years. They are simply these three things. Firstly, we have been very struck by their joy and their faithfulness in the gospel. I think much of it comes from the fact that they are precisely people who know their place in God's plan and are sure of God's love from them right from the beginning and, if you like, beyond the beginning. It's not that they know everything. There are still many questions and many mysteries. But they know the Lord. And they know where they stand before Him. That sense of security brings confidence to them. Brings commitment, as we'll see. And joy grows in that soil. A little of that, just a little is something to do with the glorious climate. I hesitate to say this on a day like today, one of our Dreka days. It's just, we're not complaining for a minute. It's wonderful to be cool. It's wonderful to be damp. It's wonderful uh, to see some beautiful, varied skies. But where we are, I'm sorry. And where we go back on Wednesday, I'm really sorry. It will be 25 to 30 degrees. And the sun always shines. And the rain comes from below, not from above. Uh, it's an amazing place. And we live outside. Uh, we live in the courtyards, we live on the streets, uh, we live our lives outside, not just physically, but I think emotionally too. Our friends uh, are up front with us, they are marvellous. Uh, uh, Egyptians are amazing really in our stumbling attempts to learn Arabic. Uh, we say things sometimes, oh they say your Arabic is wonderful. <laughs> and we cringe in a corner. Uh, others in other countries will say, how long have you been here? Two years, can't you speak better than that? But Egyptians are just wide open if you make any effort to, to come onto their turf, to speak their language. They'll, they'll welcome you with great joy. Some of that is to do with an open, uh, warm climate. We're not shivering in, in, uh, in our worship sometimes. I, I wonder sometimes if it all goes pear-shaped. I might try and do some further study about the, the way that climate affects Christian worship and witness. <laughs> But most of their joy is understanding their place in God's plan and purpose. Even in the toughest scenarios, like this one with Herod, when lives are being lost and when rulers are out of control for fear and lashing out in brutality and violence, as many rulers in the region have done and still do for insecurity, God is in control. And God is ahead of the game. Here's a word to Joseph. And the journey begins. And where is the safe place? It's Egypt. All this is in such marked contrast to even the best of Islam. Such Christian confidence in Islam would be read as blasphemy. How can you be so sure that you stand secure before God through Christ? You can't claim that 
You can't surely know that. It's too much. You cannot claim to be sure of your relationship with God. That is for God alone to judge and you have to submit to him and wait to see. You can never know where you stand. Not you. He alone will decide who he forgives and who he does not. His will, his privilege if you like, is to make that decision. You can only submit to that will and wait to see how he will judge. Actually, many Muslims who become Christians will battle with this for a very long time because it will keep coming back to them. It will keep eating away at their security. You can help them like this by reading verses like this. Out of Egypt have I called my son. You have roots in God's plan. You can be sure where you stand with him. You do not need to be afraid anymore. It's such a a powerful witness. Such a powerful difference. So many battle with it. And our help can be alongside our friends to help them be sure and to help them stay sure that God is for them. As we'll be celebrating at Christmas, God is with us. God is Emmanuel. God has come here. God is interested in every detail of your life. He doesn't just send you rules. He's come as a person to speak the language of human personality and to change us from the inside out, to rescue us and bring us into the presence of the living God. You may be sure of it. It's not claiming too much. You're not claiming you know everything. Paul says, I I see through a glass darkly much of the time. But you can be sure of this. Their joy and their faithfulness in the gospel. You see how powerful that is. And how powerful the gospel is for our Muslim friends. Here's the second thing. In addition to their joy and their faithfulness in the gospel, we have noticed their complete commitment to learning and to discipleship. This has been very striking. We noticed it actually over 12 years ago when we had a sabbatical in Egypt and in the region. How much more deliberate many of our friends are in their minority situation. By the way, a minority in Egypt, 10% are from Christian background. That's still 8 million. That's coming up for double the size of Scotland. So we've got quite a few people around. But in that context, uh, they are very committed to learning And to understanding, we would call it discipleship. Now where we are, uh, in the cathedral in the centre of Cairo, uh, we get people together on Friday, the main day off, and on Sunday. And then we have a variety of home groups. We've actually got five this year. Uh, But they're small and it's difficult to get people together. It's difficult to get people to travel across such a city. It takes so long to make journeys so much of the time. Many of the businesses, many of the universities, many of the schools are moving out of this massive city to the desert where you get a lot more land for your money, but you have to start from scratch. But you have to budget two or three hours a day for your journeys in both directions. It's a tough call. So it's tough to get people to come for an extra meeting in the midweek. But our Egyptian friends seem to manage it. They find ways of meeting to learn together. They regard themselves as the Christian family. And in a family culture uh, with a pyramidical structure, with fathers in the family calling them together, the family eats together 
And the family learns together, all ages together. And they make time and space for it. And again, look back in the history, look back in the roots. We've been uh, doing a little series recently in the cathedral, They're alternating with our regular Bible study, as perhaps you do as well, simply called Learning from mostly Egypt and certainly from some of those early church leaders who knew the apostles right at the beginning. What did they write? What were the issues that they faced? How similar are they? And they're some of them very similar to the issues that we face now in the Middle East and I suggest that you are facing here now. It's been very stimulating to go back to Athanasius, the guardian of the faith against Arius who wanted to give it away. And by the way, Arius got the music and that's how he did it. He uh, got hold of the music and began to change the words. It's very significant both what we sing, how we sing. Uh, because in the past, the church nearly came off the rails over this. And God raised up an Athanasius to get us back on track. St. Anthony, much loved by our Egyptian friends, was the pioneer of the prayer movements that we're now enjoying uh, flourishing again in contemporary Scotland. And some of those roots go right back to these original people who learned to pray, sometimes far away in the deserts, sometimes in the cities involved. They learned that school for learning, the catechetical schools as they call them, they're not only for specialists, they are to equip every believer for every challenge that we face every day. If the members of a congregation are well trained, That will equip us to be witnesses in the world. Wherever God takes us. Wherever God places us. It will also keep those of us who teach and preach sharp. Because you'll know whether what we're saying is true or not. Because you'll be at a similar level. And uh, we need to welcome that. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of this kind of context, God says... So our regular Bible study, our learning from the apostolic fathers, the training school that uh, the Episcopal Church in Egypt has, uh, along with other training schools that our friends in uh, Awima, the Arab World Evangelical Ministers Association, they call theirs the Augustine Theological Institute. Ours is called the Alexandria School of Theology. They take their place alongside the long-established Presbyterian Seminary, And a host of others, the Victory Bible College and uh, all those others that are coming from Africa as well, alongside our friends who are committed to learning and to discipleship. It seems everyone's learning. My question is simply this, are you learning too? Even those of you who are students, I know sometimes study is some kind of occupational hazard, uh, but actually you're learning. And are you investing at the same level in your faith? Because the challenges, as we well know, are out there. And they're very strong. Where we are, the majority of people are from a Muslim background. Where you are now, the majority of people claim no background at all. But they're very strong views. How can we cope with this? How can we engage with this? What you have here still is that public dimension to faith that we find much more difficult in Egypt. You have the opportunity to engage in public about faith and society and how we make decisions and where our instincts lie. It's still worth it. We're still a democracy. You can still be involved at that level, but we need to be equipped 
and we need to be trained. So are you learning? And what are you learning like this? Here's the third thing. Their joy, their faithfulness in the gospel, their commitment to learning and discipleship, and their boldness and their bravery in witness. I think you've picked that up already from what I've been saying, and I think from what many of you know about this region. Matthew is clear. When God becomes man to live amongst us and rescue us, he comes to one of the most volatile and tense regions of the world. That was true then, and it's still true now. Out of Egypt have I called my son. We've discovered that uh, for some of our diplomatic friends, uh, the Middle East is regarded as a hardship post, second only to Afghanistan, Pakistan perhaps. Uh, They stay three years or four perhaps, and then they move on. Some of our military friends are in the same category. But just as now, so then. Uh, The Middle East was always a nightmare posting for the Romans. Stuck in this argumentative, rebellious place. Everyone else in the empire would just knuckle under and cope with it. If you accept that the Romans are in charge, you were free to get on with your life. If you accepted that Caesar is king and you bowed down to him every so often and acknowledged it, you were free even to pursue your own religion without much interference. But Jewish people... And these weird Christian people that came from them, they are so awkward. They are so difficult. They will not let it go. They won't just let it pass. They're always different. Why do you have to be so different all the time? Why is it so difficult for us? They are weird, these people. They just have to be difficult all the time. And so the only answer we have is to put them under pressure. And the pressure was them. And the pressure is now. Actually, in Egypt, it works something like this. We have freedom. We have freedom to do what we like within our recognized registered church premises. I mentioned to friends who came for the meal last night that still for the first couple of years, my most poignant moment is Palm Sunday or Palm Friday as we have it sometimes. And our Egyptian friends bring a real live donkey And uh, we parade around the cathedral precinct. And it's very moving. We sing those lovely Palm Sunday hymns and then we come back into church together. But it makes me weep. Because we only walk around the cathedral. Inside. We are not allowed to go outside. One year, I'd love to try it. To go up and down the streets amongst the informal mosques and to sing those songs. I might be on the next plane out if I do. Uh, But that's the challenge, you see. How can we go beyond these constraints? Actually, it's not a million miles from what you're facing, is it? In our culture now, oh, interested that you're a Christian. Yes, you go to that big church, Charlotte Chapel. Very interesting, obviously very lively. But please, I'm really glad you go. It's obviously doing you good, but don't bother me. Isn't that how it goes? Please. If you get into religious things, you just get into trouble, don't you? I mean, look at the Middle East. It's a powerful challenge for us here, just as it is for our friends. And actually, we do have freedom of religion in the Middle East. Egypt has signed all the paperwork. 
You may become a Muslim anytime you like. That's our freedom. You can't go the other way. Which is why one of the biggest challenges our churches face is people who do come to faith from various backgrounds, but who can only see that leaving is the future. They can't see how they could marry, how they could raise a family when the children would be counted as Muslim. And uh, that's one of the things that we've noticed also, that the growing area of Christian engagement in that kind of culture is what you would call advocacy. Advocacy and campaigning is an increasing part of Christian mission. You signed this, Egyptian government. Now please, will you do it? And we'll be watching, and we'll talk about it, and we'll tell others about it. We might even shame you into doing it. Please, do what you say. Let people change sides. Open the doors. See what will happen. Remember that you were once a solidly Christian country. Even Yemen was once. And one day, in God's mercy, may again be. These are the things that we've been learning. I want to share more tonight, more specifically from one passage of how our friends in the Middle East see Scripture and understand it. But here we are, amongst privileged to share with people whose joy and faithfulness is evident and a constant challenge to us. People whose commitment to learning and understanding is continuous, a constant challenge to us. And whatever the pressure, people who are bold and brave in owning up to being Christians and being unafraid. Our Muslim friends, I think, want us, if we're Christians, to be clearly Christian. We should not disappoint them. We should not disappoint them. Our bishop in Egypt, Bishop Munir, an outstanding leader, both in the nation and worldwide, says this, I want every congregation of mine to have these three priorities. Sharing your faith, evangelism, even when you're not supposed to. Learning and understanding your faith, discipleship. And mission, expressing, showing your care in Christ's name for people in need. You couldn't say fairer than that, could you? That's well worth working within a framework like that. And when I come to the chapel and I look at your webpage, I see a very similar framework. You want to be conspicuous for Christ. Be that. Don't disappoint them. Your Egyptian friends would love to see that. That would encourage them because they love to be connected with lively people elsewhere. They don't want to be boxed in alone. They want to be world Christians. They want to be with you as you seek to honor God's name. To worship him together in spirit and truth. To please him in all you say and do. To teach and understand God's word and apply it to your lives. To be more like Jesus Christ. To serve God's people and to care for one another. And to extend God's kingdom. To proclaim the good news of Jesus. To demonstrate his love in action. So others might come to confess Christ as Savior and Lord. What you're doing, we are seeking to do as well. Pray for us, as our Egyptian friends always say. As we give thanks for you. Shall we pray together?
Let's take a moment of silence as we pray and hear those words ringing in our ears out of Egypt. Have I called my son? Pausing to pray first and foremost for ourselves. That our security in Christ might deepen, our joy might grow. That our determination to, to grow and learn and understand might deepen. And that despite the pressure on us as elsewhere, we might be bold and brave in our witness, winning and attracting people to Christ. Lord, as we pray for ourselves here today, we pray for our friends and our colleagues in Egypt and throughout the Middle East, as we've prayed for your people throughout the world today. We pray that these things will continue to be true for them as we ask that they will be true for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.